bun. Hey, sugar puff. Hey, little sweetie. How you doing, merenguito? Y bomboncito. Corazoncito de meloncito. Did anyone get the hint? What are we talking about today? Casquitos de guayaba. Oh, I wish. Oh, we could do a whole episode on casquitos de guayaba, how the canned ones are no good. Okay? No, no, no. They have to be made from scratch. They have to be made With from scratch. With a shit ton of sugar. 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 What are we talking about today? It's, it's sugar, folks. It's sugar. It's sugar, Spoiler. It's sugar cane. It's, it's sugar, sugar mill. It's sugar, sugar Cuba, all of that stuff. Welcome back to Take It Easy, a podcast that celebrates and educates on all things Cuban American. Today's episode is all about sugar. We're touching on sugar today because uh, sugar cane and the whole industry of sugar has shaped Cuba over the years, over the centuries. You can actually argue that sugar is what built Cuba, and we'll get there. But first, we have to start off by saying that sugar is not native to Cuba. Sugar was brought over to Cuba by the colonizers, and we can't exactly tell who it was exactly. Um, some people say it's Christopher Columbus, other people say it's Diego Velasquez, and we can't find exact confirmation, but we do know that sugar first arrived in Cuba in the 1500s. It's wild to think that something so connected to Cuba and Cuban identity, of course, was imported. But there was purpose behind this. I mean, sugar cane became a slave crop, a crop that led to plantations, slave masters, and a whole entire ecosystem dependent on the slave trade. The Haitian Revolution in 1791 made it so that thousands of refugees, and I'm doing comillas here, quotation marks, because actually these people are slave masters who are fleeing the slave rebellion, and they're fleeing to Cuba. So that's how we end up with a bunch of French people in Camagüey. Also, a lot of Haitians were immigrating there as well for the same reason. And with the Haitian Revolution happening, this meant that Cuba's biggest competition in sugar production was now totally wiped out. Also in 1791, Spain lifted all limitations on the slave trade, and this allowed Cuba to start importing slaves, and it made sugar production way cheap. So this trifecta makes it perfect for Cuba to enter the stage as a major sugar producer. And be evil. And be evil. <laughs> Another notable thing that happened was that in 1830, this is one of my favorite stories, in 1830 there was a ship called La Amistad that was brought over full of slaves that were kidnapped from Sierra Leone all the way to Cuba. And as soon as they got to Cuba, the slaves rebelled, demanded to be taken to the U.S. where they were actually freed. So those are just some cool stories that happened in the onset of setting up a sugar slave trade in Cuba. So that's how it started. As the 1860s came around, Cuba produced one-third of the world's sugar. And so these plantations were not just full of enslaved Africans. There were also Mexican Indians and Chinese folks that were coming in to handle all of this increased production. Around 1865, when we know that the African slave trade was ending... It wasn't yet illegal in Cuba, and there was huge demand from Cuban sugar plantation owners to keep the slave trade going because sugar, right? Because sugar, because money. Because money. Because money. money. Um, also, in the 1800s, we begin to see not only in Cuba, but all over the world, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. Sugar is what brings the Industrial Revolution to Cuba with steam-powered mills and highly mechanized systems. So sugar was also seen as a catalyst for innovation and technology in Cuba for at least that time. It wasn't just the steam-powered mills that were part of this industry, but when we get into how these mills were structured, 
it also led to the development of railroads. And Absolutely. so, yeah, it, it was entirely changing the terrain of Cuba. It was also eating up Cuba's hardwood forest. But, you know, the environment, ecosystem, whatever, who cares? You know, you got to make money, sugarcane, you know, priorities, right? And because Cuba was producing one-third of the world's sugar, it was called the Sugar Bowl of the World. Imagine the entire world, one-third of the sugar, is being produced by a tiny island nation in the Caribbean. I mean, that's big. I just want to paint that picture. During the 1800s, Cuba is under Spanish rule. And this is really important because the Spanish are dictating exactly how land can be transacted. And during this time, the Spanish are not allowing anybody new or anybody from the outside to come in and buy land. They can only be inherited. This changes in the 1890s with a new mortgage law that made it possible to buy land. And this made it really attractive for U.S. capitalists to come in and buy very cheap real estate that is prime land for growing sugarcane. The U.S. military even stepped in. There was a military order that divided estates into privately owned tracts that could be freely bought and sold. So basically they were just like dividing out land, selling it, selling it, selling it, and then the people who used to live in it were displaced. And so the sugar corporations were just taking full advantage of this, like, slicing and dicing of land. That changed the landscape of Cuba again, and it also changed a lot of, like, the social stratification of Cuba's classes. It meant that a lot of people who were already there farming that could not afford to farm sugar had to go farm stigmatized crops such as cocoa. It became a lot harder for them to make a living. And so, of course, the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. We all know the name of the game here, and it is called capitalism. So by the early 1900s, we have an entire hyper-capitalist society that is budding in Cuba. And this is where the shit really goes down. And, you know, the U.S. had been trying to literally buy Cuba outright for so many years. And now after the Spanish War of Independence ended and Cuba won, quote unquote, in many ways, the U.S. was able to swoop in and fill a bit of a vacuum, a power vacuum that existed in Cuba. With the Platt Amendment of 1903, basically the United States had an open field to be able to interfere in Cuban affairs when it determined as daddy that Cuba's security, political stability, or ability to protect property was at risk. Does that sound like independence to you? <laughs> no, it does not sound like independence to me. It sounds like a sugar daddy, sugar baby situation where mm -hmm. one person, aka the sugar daddy, facilitates the sugar baby's life and makes it so that the sugar baby cannot live without the sugar daddy. And to properly explain this, we need to explain a really quick treaty, the Cuban-U.S. Trade Reciprocity Treaty, which gave Cuba Cuba a 20% discount on the full sugar duty. So basically the U.S. said, hey, listen, we're going to buy all of your sugar. You sell to us first. We have preference and we're going to give you a 20% discount. And also you belong to us now. So because you're our investment, here's a plat agreement, which means that we can do whatever we want with you. Cool. That's how we started off the 1900s. Yay! <laughs> and this marks the start of what many historians call the period of U.S. hegemony. And the reason why they call it this is because what happens over the next 50 years is a series of favorable trade agreements, favorable toward the U.S., mm -hmm. never Cuba. <laughs> of course, remember, we're talking about the sugar daddy here. This has to work for the sugar daddy. And the first of this was the institution of quotas. Quotas were really important because it was a way that the U.S. was able to 
set the terms of the sugar demand for Cuba. So basically, they estimated how much sugar that they would need every year and would tell Cuba, you need to produce this much. And then they would also tell them the prices for the sugar. And then they were also like, by the way, this is a good deal because remember, we're giving you 20% off of the duty. So this forced Cuba into economic servitude and they would amend this every three to five years to get worse and worse and worse. So this forces Cuba into a, a rock and a hard place. They can't really break free because they need this, but also they're enjoying a preferential treatment. They always have a guaranteed buyer. That's very attractive for Cuba. Also, despite the prices being set by the U.S., Cuba was still enjoying a better deal than the rest of the world because they were getting that 20% off in duties. Even as we talk about this trade agreement between Cuba and the United States, it's not explicitly Cuba that is working with the United States. There are as we've mentioned, United States capitalists owning, overseeing, and profiting from these plantations in Cuba. And so even the trade agreement is still like largely filled with American United States players, even those that are stepping on Cuban soil. And also during this time, the United States has seen the rise of companies like Hershey, Coca-Cola, Pepsi. They have something in common. They're very sugary. Okay, they require a lot of sugar. On, on top of that, the plant, the actual sugar cane, actually requires milling within 24 hours. And so with all of these constraints, the whole industry ends up becoming very centralized. So there are sugar sugar mills, enormous sugar mills, often at the very center of town, called centrales. And they're also directly amongst the cane fields so that the production can happen pretty instantly. The same cane farmers who previously owned their lands are now tenants and they're called colonos. A lot of the people who were previously primed to excel because now there's this huge demand for this crop that they've been farming have lost all of their independence and basically it's like having the rug pulled out from under you you see something that's really cool and then you're like womp womp I actually can't have it it's a big bummer and so a lot of the risk involved with sugarcane production gets transferred onto the cane farmers because they're the ones that are stuck with crop that they either can't grow or can't sell, unfortunately. All of this system contributes to a lot of political instability because every single president that comes in before Batista, because we only hear of Batista and Fidel Castro, but there were so many presidents before that and they couldn't get any of their shit together. And one of the reasons is because every single president that comes in has to deal with the U.S. being a giant bully. If you're the president of Cuba at this time and you make a wrong move and mess it up with your sugar daddy, you're fucked. And if also, you don't make aggressive moves to sever the ties and even at the playing field, you are essentially continuing in perpetual serfdom. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what's going on at the political <laughs> sphere. How many parts of this Frankenstein are United States pieces and what, what parts of it are Cuban anymore? <laughs> like yeah. it's a it's a Frankenstein operation where the United States has brought in like their credit, their capital, their capitalist, like their plantation owners, all of it. And this is, this is just the early 1900s. <laughs> Dude, we're just in the early 1900s here. I can't believe it. Okay, so there was a sugar crash in the mm -hmm. 1920s. Mm -hmm. You think of the roaring 20s? Well, it wasn't so roaring over in Cuba. Where the price of sugar dropped because the European sugar beet industry was out here recovering 
after World War One, you know, which of course was really bad for Cuba and it caused inflation to soar. And during this time, the U.S. again saw a really good opportunity to come in and be a bully again. So U.S. politicians pushed a banking bill through Cuban Congress. The terms of this banking bill were so restrictive that Cuban banks couldn't meet it. They then folded, and in that vacuum, <laughs> American banks swooped in, and Cuba now had increased dependence on U.S. banks and U.S. capital. I also want to mention that sugarcane is seasonal. This makes it so that the Cuban economy runs on credit. And this makes banks even more influential than usual. So everyone's in debt to the U.S. <laughs> Yay! So you can start to see the, the reasons and the things that are happening that start to lead to a radical revolution in the future. Hypercapitalism is so bitter. When anything is hyper, you tend to kind of see a big old swinging effect. And so we'll start to lay the groundwork for that. Though the 1930s started to look a lot better, at least economically for Cuba, there was a little bit of a flip side to Cuba's highly specialized production of sugar as a monoculture. Cuba was actually, during the 1940s and the early 1950s, had the highest per capita income of all tropical countries, though how this per capita income was distributed along like social and racial lines, I cannot say. But it was still a, a better economic outcome than other tropical countries at the time. And of course, this means that rich people are chilling in Havana. And so that's when you start to see the legacy of Cuba forming, this idea of this Havana splendor with the casinos and the cabarets and the nightlife and the beautiful houses. I'm telling you, Cuba was built. The Cuba that you all know and love and don't want to change so you can go back. That was built <laughs> off sugar. So right before the revolution, there are a lot of groups that came out in opposition to Batista and a lot of groups that were anti-imperialist. We've described many components of this imperium. And so it's almost only natural for all of this frustration to start brewing, all of this inequality to turn into something larger. And here we are. And boom, <laughs> it pooped out Fidel Castro. And so um, what are some things that Fidel Castro thought about sugar? He's rallying around Cuba, criticizing the monoculture that sugar represented, which is essentially like the idea that there's an industry that dominated the Cuban economy, which makes it super vulnerable to market swings, and it never gets a say in those market swings. And it's completely being dominated by foreign investors, and a lot of the workers and laborers are living under unjust conditions, living under serfdom. So Castro is beginning to appeal to all of these people. And all of these people are looking at Castro and thinking, wow, this is the answer to our problems. This is the answer to an autonomous nation. And of course, Castro comes into power. But the big problem with all of this is that he didn't really know how to lead the exit strategy, right? So you have a country that is entirely dependent on one commodity. And now suddenly out of nowhere overnight, you're saying no. No more. There wasn't a solid plan to restructure the Cuban economy. There's a really good story about how El Che was appointed to become the Minister of Industries and the President of Central Banks. And I don't know if this is true. I read it in a book, but I just wanted to mention it. They were in a room and they were talking about the Cuban economy. And they said, Lo que hace falta es un buen economista. 
And then Che raised his hand. What they said is, what we really need is a really great economist. And Che raises his hand. And then later, when Che was asked why he raised his hand, not having any economic background or finance background, he said, oh, I thought they were asking for un buen comunista. I thought they were asking for oh a good God. communist. That just sounds like one of my grandfather's jokes, but it's really good. <laughs> it really, you know, even if it didn't happen, it drives home the point that the people that were placed in positions of power were not people who uh, necessarily had experience in these realms and or could not precisely navigate that sphere as it existed. And so to illustrate how little Fidel and Chen knew about how to restructure the Cuban economy, um, I want to tell a story about El Che and a man called Julio Lobo, who is known as the sugar king of the world, not just of Cuba. This is the richest man in Cuba before the revolution. He was entirely self-made and he was Cuban. So I bring him up because we're talking about all of these tycoons and all of these sugar crats and we're talking about them being foreign investors and, and capitalists and like these bona fide bad guys and not that Julio Lobo was a good or bad guy, but he definitely was Cuban and he, at his core, had the Cuban economy in his interest because it literally was his interest. This man had an incredibly impressive ability to compete with and beat the American capitalists at their own game. He was pulling short squeezes left and right. He was using futures to drive up the prices of sugar in his benefit over and over and over again. I mean, he beat the system over and over again. He became the richest man in Cuba on on purpose. Like, it wasn't by accident, guys. This man was such a big name in sugar that he had his eldest grandchild christened with cane juice. This is Cuba's biggest player in sugar that is still Cuban. And so, of course, Che thinks it makes sense to go up to him. And first he thinks, well, I'm going to catch him, right? I'm going to go through all of his balance sheets and I'm going to catch him on something. But this man was so buttoned up, it was impossible. This is how incredible he was. And so Che calls him up at 2 in the morning and tells him, come over. And he does with his lawyer. And he walks him through the door and says, listen, I've been looking through your balance sheets and I can't find anything wrong. I need to nationalize resources and you're the guy that I need to talk to. So what's going to happen is I am going to take away all your entire empire. It's all going to belong to the Cuban state. I'm going to give you one house and $2,000 and you are going to help me run this entire economy. Cool? And Julio was like, uh, first of all, it's two in the morning. Um, second of all, I need to think about this. Third of all, um, can I get back to you? Bye. Bye. <laughs> and so he goes home and he finds that his house has been locked up and that was the end of Julio Lobo in Cuba. He was like, cool, I got the message. I wanted to tell this story because this properly illustrates the magnitude to which Fidel and Che had no clue what they were doing. They drove out the person who moved the entire markets with a nod of his head. You wish that you didn't have to work with the magnates to get these things going, but you have to acknowledge the fact that the magnates are in power and if you get them out of the way you don't just you don't obtain their power clearly you don't just nationalize sugar and then the same amount of production the same amount of riches wealth everything falls on the nation you actually need connections resources and an entire structure to function there's a bit of irony in this because Julio Lobo had begun to incorporate some vertical integration into the industry which is 
kind of in line with the nationalization of resources. Vertical integration, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, is an arrangement in which the supply chain of a company is integrated and owned by that company. So to illustrate that, in this example, we're talking about sugar. It would mean that you don't just own the mill or the actual sugarcane fields, but then you also own, say, the manufacturing of byproducts. You also own the transportation. You also own the distribution. All of that belongs to you so that you can further control. This is how monopolies are built, basically. It, it can also translate into the nationalization of industries because that is what nationalization is, is taking it, all of this and making it belong to the state instead. So Julio Lobo had already begun incorporating some of these elements to maximize and make his industry a lot more efficient. And so the fact that the nationalization of resources aimed to do something very similar and then it failed to do so is just very ironic to me. What happens after Julio Lobo leaves, the last sugar tycoon of Cuba leaves, and now the country is left in the hands of the communist regime? What happens now? So the revolution happened and the United States was not happy with that. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> like, we know that. We know that. We know that the United States has not liked the communist takeover, the Castro regime. And on top of that, one of the first things that Castro did when he came to power was de-emphasize sugar production for Cuba. And sugar daddies do as sugar daddies do. They were like, you know what? Since you're not going to play nice with us anymore... We're going to slap you with an embargo. We would normally, in discussions of Cuba, talk about the embargo on its own, the purpose of the embargo, what it does to affect Cuba's economy, its intention to cause a, a transition of power, all of those things, right? It seems to exist as a singular act. But when you look at the embargo as a continuation of the relationship between Cuba and the United States— as you can see, there's there's been economic regulation on the part of the United States for so, so many years. Yeah, facts. Yeah. But, but then you know what happened? Why? There was another sugar daddy behind him being like, hey, you know what? That guy sucks, right? But look, 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 I have a preferential trade agreement for you and it's going to be great. How about that, right? <laughs> like, my name is Soviet Union and I'm here to help you. <laughs> and then just like, you know what? We were de-emphasizing sugar and all, but you know what? This sounds a little too tasty, too, little, too sweet to be true. And everything again changed to pivot towards a sugar daddy. Policy shifted in 1969 to return sugar to its central position in the economy with the Soviet Union. And the way the Soviets ran things were a little bit different from Cuba's previous sugar daddy. There were huge areas of land that were under one administration. So rather than having various capitalists and sugar magnates, it was all under one administration. Everything was done in so large quantities, huge quantities of fertilizers, pesticides. The Soviet Union also subsidized the whole sugar industry and set the goal of the sugar industry as simply increasing production by any means necessary. So you don't have to become more efficient. You don't have to lower the cost of sugar production. You just have to make more. And with that, in the 1970s came La Safra de los Diez Millones, which is a big marketing campaign <laughs> by Fidel Castro and his regime to get 10 million 
ton sugarcane harvest, all in the name of sovereignty, all in the name of saying we can do this together, but really on the underside of it, all in the name of producing as much sugar for the Soviet bloc as possible. Of course. Now you have a new sugar daddy and you want to make sure that you look good to them. Of course. I mean, and by marketing campaign, there was music. There was a whole saying called azúcar para crecer. There were like a bunch of slogans. It was in the, you know, in Cuban media. Y en este esfuerzo en que nos empeñamos de los 10 millones, duro y difícil, estamos ganando algo más que los 10 millones, que vale más que esos 10 millones, que es este salto de calidad en las conciencias. Y hemos ganado un espíritu, y hemos ganado conciencia de nuestras posibilidades, y hemos ganado experiencia, todos nuestros cuadros, han profundizado en los problemas como jamás habían profundizado, en los procesos industriales como jamás habían profundizado. The New York Times wrote about it. This was a big deal. It was such a big deal that actually my father recalls watching TV in the 70s and watching his favorite band form under the name Los Bang Bang, which comes from the slogan Los Diez Millones Bang which is the 10 million tons of sugar are coming. Es una una frase que 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 era a partir de de una de una zafra azucarera que que había aquí en en Cuba en los años 60. La frase se usaba mucho que era de los bang bang de que van bang. So, this whole there's a whole Cuban band that's very popular that is named after this whole campaign. And did this 10 million harvest succeed no it did it but they got pretty close you know uh, they got like to 8.9 or like they were in the eight millions or so yeah but still it really crushed morale you know you have the entire country being like yeah we're gonna make all of so the high. sugar yeah we're the sugar people yeah and then it's like whoops <laughs> couldn't make it just kidding <laughs> just kidding <laughs> Dude, like, though they shouldn't have made the goal so high when their usual production was, like, 7 million, even when, like, they were still, like, the sugar bowl of the, you know, the whole world. So the interesting like, thing about this is that when I was when I was trying to research this particular um, campaign and this particular oh marketing, yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I couldn't find anything that said that they surveyed the, like, landscape of Cuba and, like, properly determined the output that was possible. Like, there was oh, you none think of that. They, they, you think they ran projections like, off of a particular <laughs> model? Well, that's what it sounds like. What no, the- and I was, like... Carmen, Carmen, you know what they did? They were just like 10. That's a round number. That's a good number. <laughs> 10 million. That's, that's a impressive. good number. We can do this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm telling you. This is what happens when monkeys run a country. Actually, I think monkeys would have done a better job. Oh, hot take. Okay. Hot anyway. Take. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And now we're moving on to the next big, big rumble of events. The fall of the Soviet Union. In 1989. So with the fall of the Soviet Union, as one can guess, there would be a big sugar crash for Cuba. Cuban sugar production dropped. And you're just like, oh, why would Cuban sugar production drop? Isn't it a thing domestic to Cuba? Well, if we remember, like Cuba had a large mechanized sugar industry. So the Soviet Union, which had supplied sources of tractors, fuel, fertilizers for the production of sugar... Not to mention the subsidies. Yeah, not to mention the subsidies. Like, all that ceased to exist, and really, Cuba domestically couldn't stand itself up for sugar production. When your sugar daddy falls, 
You fall with him. You fall with him. <laughs> you fall with him because now you have this entire industry and system that is supposed to fit to the specific customer who no longer has the demand. And now you're not able to pivot. And, you know, that that is economic crisis, basically. Look, it's been downhill from there. I mean, not consistently downhill, but generally downhill since the fall of the Soviet Union. Because you, Cuba has not been able to become a large supplier of sugar in 2002, the industry was severely downsized. There were like half of Cuba's 156 sugar mills were closed. And Cuba actually like imports sugar now. Yeah. <laughs> I know. The sugar industry has changed so much. The demand has changed so much. A point that we haven't mentioned yet is that throughout this entire time we're talking about Cuba and sugar, we're talking about them producing raw sugar, not refined sugar. And so the demand for raw sugar has decreased and the demand for refined sugar has increased. Another thing that happened is that other players have entered the market with highly efficient systems and have usurped this sort of throne that Cuba used to hold, namely Brazil, is now currently the largest exporter of sugar. It's kind of difficult to see Cuba competing with that, considering that their industry is outdated, inefficient, and not even producing the product that the world wants. A lot of things have happened that have flicked Cuba off of that high horse right now when it comes to sugar. Today, sugar fields are abandoned and sick. Yep, they are. Yeah. So a big yeah. question arises, right? Like, is it possible for Cuba to ramp up its anti and sugar production enough to become a competitor in the world market again, considering it no longer receives any subsidies from any sugar daddies? Like, now it has to be its own sugar daddy. So is it possible? There are some problems, and we're going to go through some of them. <laughs> so, like, a majority of Cuba's mills were built before 1925, so it's very outdated technology and outdated mills. Most of the sugar that Cuba is able to provide is is raw. I mean, that's the that's what the Soviet Union wanted. So there's like no industry or mechanism in place to refine the sugar. Another issue is that because sugar has been a commodity that has been subsidized for most of the 20th century, including a lot of the formation of this new regime, I really doubt that there's anybody in the regime who can call the shots and really understands how to trade in free markets versus government-to-government centralized negotiations. Sugar is, in Cuba's context, regulated way more than any other commodity because of this long history of imperialism and then with the Soviet bloc as well. And also, there is a loss of the, of the traditional preferential market, so people are no longer demanding raw sugar. Now, there is a higher demand for other sweeteners, and there are other people fulfilling that already. So, I don't know. I, based on the information available, I, I kind of feel like it's just the, that ship sailed. That ship sailed. Maybe Cuba can't compete as a sugar producer again. But I will say that I was reading about some really interesting uses of sugar um, mm -hmm. byproducts, specifically uh, bagasse. I think that's how you say it, bagasse, which is the pulp from sugarcane after you press it. It can be used to make paper pulp. It can be used to make compress boards for construction as an ingredient in animal feed. It can be used as a source of renewable energy that can be processed, which is a really Dude, big this deal. This is key. This is key. Cuba has an energy problem. It's continued to import fuel and oil from the Soviet Union and now Venezuela, and it continues to cause a dependency. And it's sitting on a resource that 
can fulfill that. So, you know, there are some interesting things that can happen. It's just that the government would need to make moves to, you know, employ. It would need to be different. (laughs) Yeah, it would need to be different. We also have the tourism industry pretty much supplanting many other industries in Cuba. Um, as we can see, that can be volatile with pandemics and all and all. But, mm-hmm. you know, just, just Carmen and I sitting down in our virtual Versailles trying to, you know, think of how Cuba can come back. <laughs> come back. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, no, right. no, no. I think the moral of this story, the part of the moral of this story is that Don't like, put all your eggs Cuba in one basket. has not, yeah, first of all, <laughs> sure, Cuba's been putting eggs in one basket. But, you know, not only was, like, independence never independence, free trade was never free trade. Like, there was always something, someone, a bigger force putting its, you know, dirty little fingers all over Cuba and Cuban people. And it it hasn't changed yet. It continues to be it the continues. same. I think it really sucks that something really sweet that was never Cuba's was forced onto the island along with many terrible things, imperialism, slavery, etc. In a way, it's always tethered Cuba to a, a sort of colonization effort, whether or not we're calling it that. This whole concept of having sugar daddies and never being able to stand on your own, I mean, it robbed Cuba of an autonomy. It's one of the reasons why Cuba has never been able to be an autonomous nation. And I, sometimes I can't help but think, what would have happened if they could have figured it out. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who knows? Which is kind of a sad story, but now we can get into some fun parts. Sugar is incredibly important to Cubans, not only because of this long, complicated history, which is a big, big bummer, but sugar is so fun. It's It's sweet. (laughs) It's delicious. We all have sweet tunes. I grew up understanding so clearly the importance of sugar. I have never had Cuban coffee without espumita. I mean, that is blasphemy. Um, Mm. What is espumita? (laughs) Espumita is a beautiful concoction that you make out of sugar and the strongest bit of coffee that's brewed out of your mocha pot. And so you pour that strongest bit onto some Cuban sugar or whatever sugar you can find. You beat it with a spoon. Once you pour the rest of the coffee over this this little concoction, it creates a little foam over the top and it makes your coffee nice and sweet. It's good. It's good. It, it, it is the cherry on top of of Cuban coffee. This is such a thing that the Libreta de Abastecimiento, which is a, a booklet that dictates the rations that a, a regular Cuban person is able to go and obtain from their store. We have seen it in various periods of time, not one, but two lines for sugar. That means that during periods of famine and during periods of hardship, when there is nothing else, Cuba is still giving people a lot of fucking sugar. <laughs> That's yeah, how I mean, honestly, is. like, you know... If you got nothing else, you can just make un tecito with some leaves that you find in like in the middle of the yard or in your street and you add some sugar and you just survive to the next day. Yeah. <laughs> got a little sugar to tide you over. We yeah. also have a delicious a delicious drink called guarapo. It is made directly from sugar cane. I think if you're in Miami and you go to the Palacio de los Jugos, you can get some guarapo. Okay, yep, folks. So just make sure to get some guarapo today. Absolutely. All Cuban desserts are super, super sweet. They are like three-fourths sugar, and then the remaining ingredients are in that last fourth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty much our panatela, our cakes have almibar, which is like just a sugar syrup that drenches all of it. Like our merengues, our meringues are very, very sweet in sugar. There's dulce de leche, which is, again, very, very sugary. Like, we can just name all of our desserts, and they are 
damn sugar. sugary. I mean, most desserts yeah. are sugar, but Cuban desserts even more. No, you have no idea. Like, if you if you're just <laughs> if you're one of those people, it's just like this tastes too sweet to me. Like, then don't try. You're gonna struggle with Cuban dessert. <laughs> yeah, seriously, <laughs> seriously. We also have Celia Cruz, who we just covered. Celia Cruz, who has made azúcar literally her brand. And also, there's rum. Cubans are known for rum. The legacy of Bacardi is at this point they're distilling out of Puerto Rico for other reasons, political and economic reasons. But Bacardi started in Cuba, and it was all made possible by, in part, by sugar. I mean, Cuban rum is just Cuban a big rum thing. in general like is a big deal. It's not just Bacardi; it's like all of it, you know. Like, Havana Club, yeah, yeah. Havana Club, yeah. And also, sugar was so heavily involved with the economics of Cuba. We actually sometimes use caña, which is sugarcane, as a word for fiat currency. Yeah, like la mesinco caña. Yeah, basically means give, give me, me five, five bucks. Give me, give me yeah, five bucks. Tell me that you're Cuban without telling me that you're Cuban. I grew up with a machete <laughs> in your house. In my house, and it wasn't fucking creepy. It's just the way it is. I knew exactly where it was at the age of three. That thing was bigger than I was, and I was like, "Yeah, this is my life." We all grew up with machetes. I mean, you can use machetes for sugarcane. You can use machetes to cut down that guarapo. You can use machetes to intimidate another family. I don't know, guys. I find it funny that even even us growing up in Miami, like after having left Cuba and all of its uses for its like all of the machetes' uses, we were still like, "Oh no, we gotta have a machete. You cannot live yeah. without one." <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a vestige of of our culture. Mm-hmm. And con eso, I think we can get into our cubanismo. Ese muele más que un central. <laughs> that one chomps more than a mill. It, it basically means you eat a lot. <laughs> like, you know, you're always chewing on something like a sugar mill does with the production of sugar and the sugar cane. So this is how you use it. All right. Hey, Frida, I'm planning a dinner party. Will you bring Ryan? Ryan? Ese no. Ese muele más que un central. He's going to eat all of our food. <laughs> Basically, I can't bring Ryan over because he is eating more than a sugar mill. And that is how you use it. And it's amazing that Cubans, in their familiarity with sugar mills, bring it into their language. We and don't I just say it. that people eat a lot. We say, ese muele más que un central. And I think that's beautiful. Thank you so much for listening to our episode about sugar. It was a really fun one. Sweet. <laughs> Thank you so much to our patrons, Carolina, Lauren, Gianni, Kellis, Vidal, Christine, Dee, Derek, Andy, Ryan, Jose, Susan, Celia, Catherine, Lauren, Kaylee, Amaudi, Kristen, Sarah, Karina, Jason, Josh, Yvette, and Jesse. We are at Take It Easy Pod on all social media. You can email us at TakeItEasyPod at gmail.com our website has a merch store go check it out and that is takeiteasypod.com and we still have our NFT Cafe Con Crypto up for sale on OpenSea hope you get to check it out and we will see you in the next one take it easy folks take it easy support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.